1: You're listening to an Ono Media podcast. Good morning, and thanks for joining me for Rise in Crime, your morning caffeine hit all about crime. I'm Mama Jules, and let's start with an explanation about today's episode. We're waiting on a couple of trials to finish up, and I've had just a few smaller stories just kind of simmering in the back of my brain. So today is your buffet of smaller crime stories from the last few weeks. So first up, I've been waiting for more details to come out in this particular case before bringing you the story But you guys, it's been pretty hush-hush for almost two weeks. So I figured let's just dive in with what we know. 18-year-old Trinity Madison Pogue is the reigning Miss Donaldsonville. It appears this is a local pageant that qualified Trinity to compete in the Miss National Peanut Festival pageant. Now, a look at the pageant website shows that 34 counties or areas are represented at the Peanut Festival pageant in Georgia, which the thing I compare it to is like my state fair. There's lots of fair food, there's exhibits, there's vendors and entertainment, and all of that includes the pageant. Now, it's a big deal for the area, apparently, And Trinity had also competed in other pageants, successfully, but she wasn't just excelling in that realm. She was an honor graduate of Southwest Georgia Academy, and she was named by the local newspaper as one of just a few college freshmen that had been selected for a leadership position at the university. Now, this program at the Georgia Southwestern State University was named after President Jimmy Carter, and Trinity was just one of 22 students selected for the position. So how does someone like this turn into a woman arrested for murder? Well, it all started on January 14th, when the Georgia Southwestern State University Police Department alerted the Georgia Bureau of Investigations to a suspicious death of an 18-month-old. Now, the GBI had been informed that an unresponsive toddler had been admitted to the emergency room at Phoebe Sumter Hospital in Americus, Georgia. ER staff attempted to save the child's life, but he could not be resuscitated. So we have a campus police department and a regional hospital, and now the GBI is involved. Well, all of that's because it started on the campus when Trinity was watching after the little boy that has... What appears to be two names but i'm going to refer to the boy as jackson because that seems to be the name most have reported others seem to be calling him baby drew because that's the middle name and others call him a legal name which is romeo now trinity was watching the boy at her dorm room because she is dating the boy's father Juwan williams and it appears juan has custody of the child informally, because the boy's mother had returned to Mexico for a while, but she's been reported to be back in Florida. It's also been reported that Jackson had not seen his biological mother for months. So that's where the informal custody comes into play. Anyway, that's why the boy has two names. His mother named him Romeo and his father named him Jackson Drew. Now back to the 14th, Jackson was crying and crying and crying at Trinity Storm. Residents of the dorms say the boy was crying for more than an hour. And then it just suddenly stopped. Now it's not clear in the reporting from local news outlets who called the EMTs or if they were even called, but the boy was transported to the hospital after his father returned to the dorms. And it's been stated in social media posts that Juwan had left momentarily to get dinner. And when he returned, the boy was unresponsive and had what appeared to be abusive injuries. Okay, now to be clear, the GBI is completely mum about this investigation. So I'm giving you secondhand information here. Some reports on social media say that Jawan was the one who, when he saw the unresponsive child, scooped Jackson up into his arms and literally transported him to the hospital with the boy in his lap. It's also been shared on social media that Trinity didn't ride to the hospital with Jawan. Instead, she showed up about 10 minutes after the child was admitted to the ER. Now, more information on social media accounts clarifies that Trinity had watched Jackson multiple times since the couple had been dating for about a year. So to answer the question, if she was comfortable with the little boy, I think that answer is yes. And I believe one of the reasons the GBI is being so quiet about the case is because they're trying to determine if this was an isolated incident with Trinity or if the boy had suffered previous injuries, and if so, who inflicted those injuries. Another reason that the process might be going slower is the mother of the child. At first, she couldn't be located. And also missing are legal documents from the birth of the child. There also does seem to be some question about whether Jawan is the biological father of the child. But social media reports say Jawan's family says that Jackson looks strikingly similar to Jawan's baby pictures. I'm sure all of these things are complicating the whole investigation. And as a side note, whether Juwan is the biological father or not, he and his family members have been the primary caregiver of the adorable toddler. And in Jackson's obituary, he is listed as Romeo Angelis. And it also states that he is survived by his loving mother. No father is listed. So two things here. If she is a loving mother... Why had she not seen her child for months? And I asked that without judgment. Really, I want the answer. And secondly, it appears Juwan is being forced out of the picture. Now, Trinity has been charged with the death of baby Jackson. Her exact charges are aggravated battery, felony murder, and cruelty to children, all of those in the first degree. She is being held without bond for now. But like I said, it's basically been silent for two weeks. No new information, and no one from law enforcement is showing any willingness to supply information. And I get it. It's a complicated case with lots of factors going on. That's why I held off until now in telling you the story. So I'll just keep watching for additional information. And, of course, I'll be following the many hearings that should be in the future for the former beauty queen. All right, second up. An Alabama man has been sentenced for not doing his job. We have to jump back to the third week in November of 2021. When 22 year old DeAndre Rashawn Charleston, who worked for FedEx as a delivery driver, well, he was clearly having a rough time in life. A family member had died and he was dealing with what he called some personal issues. I get it, life sucks sometimes. But DeAndre still needed to get paid for his day's work at FedEx. and he just wasn't in the mood to deliver packages. So on five separate days, DeAndre backed his loaded delivery truck up to a ravine and dumped all the packages out of the truck. DeAndre had delivered out near this property on other occasions, and he knew that the property wasn't currently being lived on, so that's how he could get away with five days' worth of packages just being discarded like trash. Law enforcement discovered the dump packages when a property owner reported the hundreds of packages abandoned in the ravine. Now see, that property owner had been out to show a prospective buyer of the property what the boundaries were when they discovered what he thought was just dumped trash. When law enforcement came to investigate, that's when they knew the packages were undelivered and abandoned. FedEx sent eight trucks to pick up the package carnage and returned them to the processing center to see what could be recovered and what needed to just be thrown away. All in all, about 150 packages worth around $15,000 could be traced back to their buyers, but 247 packages worth around $25,000 could not be scanned or delivered to the rightful owners. Now, the Blunt County Sheriff's Office, in a press conference, reassured the public that DeAndre was a very polite young man who was just suffering in life and had made some bad decisions. When the five warrants were issued for DeAndre, the sheriff worked with him to decide when would he come into the station to be arrested. And I kind of really appreciated that in this case, because there wasn't like a a flashy arrest photo op or that bringing in of DeAndre into custody. It was just very human. When the five warrants were issued, DeAndre was actually working for a competing delivery company. The sheriff let him complete his day's work, and then DeAndre came into the station. He also said that after interacting with DeAndre, he hoped that he could move on from this and learn from his bad decisions. He said he wanted a young man to improve and be better. Well, last week, DeAndre was finally sentenced for the charge of fourth-degree theft. He had previously been charged with five counts of cargo theft, but four of the charges were dismissed. DeAndre was ordered to pay $805 for the theft and $655 for court fines in the dismissed charges. His attorney told AL.com that they were very pleased that the DA's office in Blount County considered all the evidence and, more importantly, the circumstances of DeAndre's life and his personal situation. He then assured the public that since this incident, DeAndre has proved through his actions that he was deserving of a non-custody sentence. He is a fantastic young man with a bright future, that according to his attorney. Now, All of this is not to say that people weren't incredibly frustrated back in 2021. A lot of packages were holiday gifts and the dumping of five truckloads interrupted many a person's lives. The sheriff did credit FedEx with working diligently to get as many of those packages to their rightful owners as possible. All right, story three. An update to the Kansas City Trio murder and the host of the party who has all but vanished. Okay, I told you this story three weeks back on January 15th. And if you want to give that episode a listen, you can get refreshed. But here's some details that have emerged in the potential overdose deaths. And we also have a whole lot of questions still not answered. Okay, here's the quick reminder. Four men were enjoying the Chiefs football game at Jordan Willis's home four weeks ago. The game ended, and one friend left the get-together late on that Sunday evening. Well, Sunday turned into Monday, and the three friends and the host of the party, well, they just didn't show up for their prospective jobs or communicate with their loved ones. Families of the three friends start to get really concerned, and they begin texting Jordan, but there's no answer. Monday turns into Tuesday, and now family members and loved ones are frantic. There's been zero communication from the three buddies and also no communication from Jordan. Finally, on Tuesday evening, April, see she's the fiance of one of the men, well, she pounds on the door of Jordan's rented home. He doesn't answer, but that isn't enough for her. So she removes the screen to a ground floor window, and then she pries open that window and enters the home. The whole time, she's yelling for Jordan to alert him that she is coming into the house. As she maneuvers through the home, she can see through a window to the fenced backyard, and that is when she spots one of the men dead. Traumatized, she retreats from the home, and she calls police. And when police arrive, they did as they should, and they knocked first. And Jordan answers the door in his boxer shorts, and he's holding a wine glass. He agrees that law enforcement can enter, and that's when they find David Harrington, Clayton McGeaney, and Ricky Johnson all dead in the backyard. One of the men, David, well, he's sitting in a lawn chair, and the other two men are found lying on the ground. And that's what we knew when I brought you the story three weeks ago. Here's the updates so far. Toxicology reports have been returned on the three men, and according to News Nation, who spoke with family members, the three men... All had cocaine in their systems, as well as high amounts of fentanyl. Now, all that I'm going to tell you is coming from family and friends. The Kansas City Police Department said late last week that they do not plan to release details to the media due to the fact that the case is an ongoing death investigation. And from the onset, the police have said that they don't believe there is any foul play in the deaths. From the feedback I've received from Rise and Crime listeners, I would say that most of you don't agree with that statement. Now, since the bodies were found on that Tuesday, Jordan packed up his belongings in a U-Haul and left just days later. It's been reported that he has entered a rehab unit, but I've also seen it reported that his inpatient care is really just a rumor. Now, Linda Johnson, the stepmom of Ricky Johnson, told News Nation she and her husband were told by authorities that the bodies had to, quote, thaw out first when they asked if they could go to identify their son. She said she did not want to wait that long, so they identified Ricky by explaining his tattoos to the authorities. She also said that when she met with investigators, that they would not confirm or deny the reports that Jordan was admitted to rehab. And basically, in her interview with News Nation, she said the police aren't giving them any details about the investigation, but that they did promise that they were working on the case. Now, WDAF reported that the three men were still alive in the early morning hours of Monday. So maybe about 1.30 a.m. they were still alive. Rumors have spread that these men were all found without their car keys or wallets in their pockets. Okay, that's bothered a lot of people online. They just couldn't believe that All three men would empty out their pockets while watching a football game. Now, News Nation did ask Ricky's stepmom about this. And she said Ricky's backpack, which contained his keys and his wallet, was left at Jordan's home. They retrieved those items from there. Not the police. That backpack was just left at Jordan's house. Okay, I find that a little weird, but you can take it for what you want. Video has also surfaced online from one of Jordan's neighbors that shows the night that the three bodies were found in the backyard. Ashton Brady shot the video that night, and he told News Nation that it also shows police detaining a man, and that man has been identified by the news outlet as his neighbor, Jordan Willis. He said he was locking up his house for the night when he saw the commotion across the street. He said he saw April. Okay, remember that's the fiance of one of the men. He said he saw her clearly upset in the front yard of the house and then an ambulance and three police cars pulled up and that's when he started filming the action. He said the video shows Jordan handcuffed near the front door of the home. At that same time, April is in the video speaking with police. But then according to Ashton, the cuffs are taken off of Jordan. Again, do with that what you want. Now, Jordan's attorney has made several statements that ranged from Jordan having no idea that the friends were there to saying he actually escorted them out of the house, but then that was retracted because how did they end up in the backyard if they had been escorted from the house? Now, I pulled the statement he supplied to Inside Edition, and here's what he said. Jordan had absolutely nothing to do with their deaths. He does not know the timing or manner of their deaths, nor does he know how or when they exited his house. He had no knowledge that they remained in his backyard or that they needed medical attention. Two people did come to his house. However, he did not hear them as he sleeps with earbuds and a loud fan. He then went on to say, One of those people, the wife of one of the deceased, tried to reach him via Facebook Messenger. Unfortunately, he did not see the message until after the police contacted him. Now, the attorney also went on to say in his statement that Jordan did not know about the efforts of the family and friends to locate the men in the days before their bodies were actually discovered in his backyard. Okay, that's his statement. But we have family members who say that Jordan had his read receipts on and that their text messages indicated that he had read their pleas for information. Okay, now we have to address something else. The cars out front of the house. Two of the men had their cars parked there. They were not in the driveway. They were parked on the street. Okay, I've seen this addressed online and I can I can kind of get behind what's said here. If they were going to use recreational drugs that night or drink or even both, They might have purposely left their cars there and possibly Ubered home. That's a very responsible thing to do. But would they just leave them there after they sobered up the next day? Okay, that's the part I can't get behind. I don't think those cars would have remained there for two whole days. And if Jordan went outside at all, wouldn't he have seen the cars and maybe called his buddies and offered to help them return the cars to their houses? Because remember, the keys to the cars are in his house. They have been left there by his buddies. Also, another reason to call your friends. Their keys are there. The, the Again, another reason to call your friends. Their wallets, their keys are there. The cars are outside. Don't you recognize these things if you're Jordan? And another thing, the lawyer has supplied contradictory statements about Jordan's actions. In one statement, he said Jordan had left the house a couple of times. Then in another statement, he said Jordan had remained in the home for two days. Now, in a local interview, a family member of one of the deceased cryptically referred to Jordan as a chemist. And he means chemist with a raised eyebrow, possibly inferring that Jordan would have cut the drugs that the men ingested. So let's look. What's Jordan's occupation? Well, he's a senior principal scientist with a PhD for a nonprofit international AIDS vaccine initiative. He works for the Neutralizing Antibody Center. And Newsweek uncovered an interview with Jordan where he explained his job like this The same silly tech that turns our faces into cats on TikTok can be used to analyze vaccine responses. We have so much data coming back from clinical trials and we could use these new fundamental deep learning techniques and computational algorithms to look for patterns, to design and to do predictions. Yeah, that was a mouthful. (laughs) Clearly he can be called a scientist, but is he a quote chemist like the family member described? All right, we'll just keep waiting on those autopsies, but I think an important question that needs answered is. Did the men ingest drugs while outside, then either fall over or pass out, but not die from the drugs? Instead, they froze to death with drugs in their system. Or did the men die from the drugs and they just happen to be out back maybe smoking a cigarette and they overdosed? Now, one question that I would like answered after the complete results on the deaths are released is how do three men of varying sizes all die in the same place at the same exact time. Wouldn't the body absorb the drugs at possibly a different rate? Or wouldn't the fentanyl be more concentrated in one hit versus another hit? Maybe the answer is completely scientific and can be explained that all men could possibly die simultaneously. But it's absolutely something that needs answered. And I'll let you know when I know And with the zipped lips from authorities in this case, I'm not sure we're going to get that answer anytime soon. We'll just have to wait and see. And lastly today, I might be making your vacation plans a little less comfortable, but the State Department has issued a couple of stark warnings about safety and travel to both Jamaica and the Bahamas. See, last week, the travel advisory for Jamaica was raised to a level three. That level warns vacationers to reconsider traveling in the region. And level three is the second to most severe travel warning. A level four warning would tell Americans that they should probably not travel to the country altogether. So what's got the State Department worried? Well, there have been 65 murders in the country of Jamaica in the last month. The U.S. Embassy says the crimes have become so pervasive that American tourists are even safe in the shelter of the resorts. The embassy statement warned that violent crimes such as home invasions, armed robberies, sexual assaults, and homicides are becoming more common. Then the statement chillingly warns that sexual assaults occur frequently, including at all-inclusive resorts. But it's not just the actual crimes that the embassy is worried about. The level three warning also alerts travelers to the concept that if a crime does occur, the Jamaican authorities aren't going to be super helpful in solving it or in aiding the victim's families. The embassy says that families of US citizens killed in accidents or homicides frequently wait a year or more for final death certificates to be issued by the Jamaican authorities. So if that number of 65 murders in the first month of 2024 scares you, it's actually better than January of last year. 81 murders were reported in Jamaica in the first month of the year of 2023. But it's the other crimes that have skyrocketed, and that's why the raise in the travel advisory to level three. So what's up in the Bahamas? Well, the travel advisory there has been raised to a level two, which indicates that vacationers should exercise increased caution. Basically, if you're going to go there, keep a low profile. The Bahamas have reported 18 murders in January of this year, but most of those were gang-related, which is why the warning to keep a low profile. Keep away from the activity, and you can greatly reduce your risk of becoming a victim. All right, what if you have a vacation already planned for Jamaica? Well, I've done some looking. Stay away from these areas of the country. Tivoli Gardens and Grant's Pen, both of those are in Kingston. Cassava Peace Road in St. Andrew and Rose Heights, Salt Spring, and Norwood, which all three of those are in Montego Bay. Now, these are more residential areas, so if you're visiting a resort, just mind your business. Once when my husband was golfing in Puerto Vallarta, and he and his caddy were chatting, he told my hubby, who doesn't drink by the way, he told him that the best advice is just don't get so drunk that you do something stupid. I remember thinking that that would apply to almost any situation. So, some sound advice from an overtanned white guy who made his living walking a beautiful golf course in Mexico. Well, that's your Monday episode of Rise in Crime. Like I promised, I'm watching the Jennifer Crumley trial out of Michigan and the Jennifer Dulos case as well. When those trials come to conclusion, I'll update you completely. Thanks for joining Ono oh Media and Rise in Crime. Also, if you love what you're hearing, please give Rise in Crime a like or a follow or a five-star review. Also, tell a friend because we'd love to have more people join us here. And you can join me again on Thursday for more morning crime news. I'm Mama Jules and keep safe out there.